gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, we are continuing to run through the tape of 2023. I don't know how that metaphor actually works, and I don't care. Um, but we are having uh, uh, some very exciting first-time guests and some very exciting fan favorites. And so for the first time uh, in 2023, we're bringing on my my... My dear friend, my fellow podcaster on my fellow co my co-host on uh, the Glop podcast, which has its own fascinating, disparate listenership, um, and of course, the editor of Commentary Magazine and the host of the Commentary Podcast, uh, none other than Mister Crushing Morosity himself, John Hodoritz. John, welcome back to the Remnant. It's amazing that I am known as as the as the soul of, of crushing morosity. When, as you know, I do nothing but sit around reading memoirs of third rate Hollywood and showbiz figures, which I think qualifies me as being kind of a an antic madcap person rather than uh, a crushingly morose person. Uh, I take your point. I just don't know that the the Lighthearted uh, jocularity and frivolity of reading the bios of Danny Aiello and whatnot <laughs> counteract all the other cr- things Fair in the enough. crushing morosity column. Fair enough. So uh, it's funny. I, I, well, I'm not going to make you do this, but um, I, I, as 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 longtime listeners know, I I will often veer into um, uh, conversations about uh, the intersection of theology and political ideology and stuff. And we've had lots of people on talking about Christian theology and whatnot, and occasionally even Muslim theology. And people write me and say, what about the Jews? Um, and um, I'm not going to do that today because I don't feel up to speed on on how to figure out how we're going to get more Jerusalem and less Athens um, into today's <laughs> political stuff. But um, uh, I do want, because we ha- I, I don't think I've ever done a, podcast at least in the last couple of years about Israel figure you could in your sleep give me an explainer about what the hell is going on in Israel right now uh okay so uh the explainer is this after um four uh inconclusive uh elections dating back to 2019 in 2021 finally a coalition of um parties and interests that existed in Israel solely and exclusively brought together by a dislike of Benjamin Netanyahu, who had been prime minister uh, by this point for 12 consecutive years, managed to cobble together a one-seat majority in the, in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. So there are 120 seats. They managed to stitch together 61. The innovative or unprecedented nature of this government was that it had an Arab party in it for the first time. Uh, led by a um, figure who shares the name, the last name of the head of the Palestinian Authority, Abbas, who nonetheless said he believed in Israel's existence. And uh, whereas the Arab parties that exist and have existed uh, question Israel's, are not essentially part of the Zionist project, do not support the existence of the state of Israel. And Arabs vote for them in, in larger numbers, who are the Arab voters, which is 
politically demented because because they do not support the existence of the government, they are not represented in the government and therefore don't have their interests represented in the government. Um, this is part of the biting, you know, sort of, uh, you know, biting off your nose to to uh, to offend your face nature of of Arab politics in and around Israel. Nonetheless, this government was cobbled together and it survived longer than most people thought it would, but it finally collapsed. And a new election uh, ensued, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu's coalition, which had been unable to get beyond sixty seats, which is why uh, for for basically for three years, and his government before the installation of this cobbled together government was a caretaker because nothing, no one could form a government. Got six, his coalition got sixty four seats, which is like the equivalent. Of a right now of a colossal landslide, <laughs> um, because there's a kind of comfortable margin, relatively comfortable margin of three seats in the majority or four, depending on how you want to measure measure it. And he therefore became prime minister again. The controversy that has erupted in relation to this government among many people, but mostly sort of liberals and leftists who really dislike Netanyahu, is twofold. One is that uh, one of the key policies that he and his new government wish to pursue has to do with reining in the runaway power of Israel's Supreme Court. Israel does not have a written constitution, and it has a unicameral legislature. So you can say that it has the problems of any such body. There is no check on, on executive or parliamentary authority uh, except, you know, the collapse of a government, of a coalition government. There's no way to stop legislation. So in the late 1990s, Israel's Supreme Court, in a, in a kind of nervy version of Marbury versus Madison, not to get too wonky, essentially arrogated to itself the power of judicial review and announced that it would now declare whether or not certain laws passed by the Knesset were or were not unconstitutional or unreasonable. There was an unreasonable standard that they started to enumerate. And uh, I think rightly and justly, people who believe in, you know, the proper administration of a representative government have objected ever since that the Supreme Court is not... Um, oh, the other part about this is that the Supreme Court is... People on the Supreme Court and in the judiciary in general are not chosen have not largely been chosen by the government. There is a, it's essentially as though the American Bar Association appoints the Supreme Court. A committee of lawyers chooses who will be on the Supreme Court. So there is, there is judicial review without any representative check on Israel's Supreme Court. It just announces that su such and such policy should, or law should be considered unconstitutional and throws it out. There's no impeachment. There's no, the judges aren't confirmed by the Knesset. So there, there's no participation of the electorate in this body, which is essentially just sort of like almost royalist in its ability to sort of like, it's like the queen in England. It just can, the way the queen in 1974 dethroned Australia's prime minister, which actually did happen. They just say, okay, that law is bad. So serious scholars and serious people who are worried about this have been pushing, about, uh, pushing back on this for more than two decades. It's now become a political issue for, 
for the reason that the Supreme Court has again arrogated to itself the idea that it will determine whether or not politicians who were accused of crimes and offenses or convicted of said crimes or offenses should or should not be allowed to serve in office. And uh, this, of course, then goes directly to Bibi Netanyahu himself, who is under, who is currently being tried uh, for three, he's been indicted for three supposed offenses. These are, in my view, by the way, and I'll view a lot of people, uh, preposterous allegations, but I'm not going to go into them. But the idea being that should he be convicted, the Supreme Court will immediately announce that he must, it will declare that he must resign from office. Uh, there is even an argument that Supreme Court could announce that since he is under indictment, he should resign from office. And there is another politician, the head of a religious party, it's a complicated party called Shas, um, Rabbi Arya Derry, who has been convicted of crimes in the past, who is now in the government and the Supreme Court. And, and the idea was that the government was going to ignore the determination of the Supreme Court that such a person should not serve as a minister in the government. And then maybe the government, the, the new government was going to pass a law reigning in the power of the Supreme Court or trying to put it under more Democrat, under the auspices of a more representative government in which there is some review of who's on the court and voters and, and people who have been actually elected and all of that. And you are now hearing, if you read a lot of articles, that this threatens Israel's constitution. Israel doesn't have a constitution. And we can say that Britain doesn't have a constitution, but Britain has 808 years since the signing of the Magna Carta. That is Britain's constitution. That's why Britain has a, it's an unwritten constitution, but it has eight centuries of common law that function as a constitution. Israel is not yet 75 years old. It will be 75 years old in May. And it doesn't have a constitution, and it probably should, but it certainly doesn't have a lot of precedent. And it doesn't have a lot of experience with this sort of thing. And so the idea that, you know, writing laws to bring the judiciary under some democratic checks is a threat to Israel's constitutional order um, is almost uh, an oxymoron or like it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. Sorry, so let's just stop there for a second because I actually heard an NPR news brief where they were explaining the protests and they described the protesters of this move as pro-democracy protesters. And the, the weird thing about that is, is that the Supreme court is of Israel is wildly undemocratic or anti-democratic. And I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not a huge, everything has to be democratized guy. Right. I mean, I want stronger parties. I, I, I think that the best thing about our government is the bill of rights, which is the least democratic part of our entire constitutional order. So, but I remember Judge Bork back in the 90s railing about how crazy the Israeli Supreme Court has gotten. So I'm very sympathetic to this on the merits. Although there's this aspect of this thing that BB is doing where they're going to replace uh, prosecutors, which are career civil servants with sort of political appointee types. That sounds dicey to me. Um, we have it. 
Yeah, US, but US we also have lots of US checks and balances. We have lots of checks I know, and balances. I understand right? so, that, but I'm saying I'm saying that every for every moment, every point at which you say, uh, you know, this is illegitimate, the forces inside Israel that are pushing some of these reforms are all looking at the American model. Mm-hmm. And the forces that say that Bibi is destroying the Israeli system are effectively looking at the British model. Now, Israel was set up on the British model. That's if you assume that their, that their criticisms are, are honest and not disingenuous, and I think they're disingenuous. Basically, Bibi doesn't like the Supreme Court because it's leftist, and because it, it, what it does is it tries to rein in the power of uh, the conservative voting majority. Well, conservative is the wrong word, but whatever. The, the voting majority in Israel because it is a representative voice of Israel's liberal elite, which is vastly less powerful and vastly less representative of Israel's populace than the liberal elite in America is of America's populace. Biden gets 81 million votes. The leftists who sort of are the voice of these protests that you're seeing the two major left-wing parties in Israel, um, Labor and, and Meretz, now got seven seats or something like mm-hmm. that, or eight seats in this government. Labor ran Israel for the first 30 years of its existence and has collapsed in the wake of uh, the failure of the peace process, uh, the Oslo process, which, which it uh, incepted, brought about, uh, pushed through, and then uh, saw to its horror the second intifada breakout in Israel after Israel made an offer of a Palestinian state at Camp David in 2000, Ehud Barak, the then Labor Prime Minister, uh, Yasser Arafat rejected that offer and instead started a terror war that killed more than a thousand people and had the country of Israel in a sort of def- in a in a kind of um, nightmarish defensive crouch on the streets of its cities for three years, and even though it's twenty years later, it's like twenty two years later since nine eleven, uh, the argument that uh, what Israel needs to do is make gestures toward the Palestinians to find ways to make sure that there's a Palestinian state has has absolutely no following in Israel outside of the 50,000 people who read Haaretz, its uh, left-wing newspaper. But the Supreme Court is that thing in Israel. It is, it, is, it is a voice of that part of the political spectrum, and it therefore has outsized power because it does not, unlike here, as I say, it does not actually represent all that many people, and we would not tolerate in the American system uh, you know, it's a little like the way a lot of us felt about the um, healthcare. I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of the the term. For some reason, I'm, I'm blanking on it. You know, the public health officials in cities in America during COVID, like Barbara yeah, Ferrer, yeah. the the healthcare the the public health commissioner of LA, who would sort of declare that everybody needed to, you know, the, the sidewalk sheds should be clo- were going to be closed. Who was she? She wasn't elected yeah. by anybody. She isn't even a doctor. You know, th- that stuff where drives people crazy, that is the Supreme Court in Israel. Now, that said, 
I'm also not a, a Democrat in the way that, you know, the way you said you were mm-hmm. not a Democrat. And I think that there is a very strong argument that Israel needs a written constitution that establishes systems of governance so that a lot of the things that have gone on that have made the, that have made the good working order of its government uh, very hard to very hard to manage uh, are regularized and given a permanent footing, including a check on the Supreme Court, but also giving the Supreme Court the power of judicial review so that when it does something, half the country doesn't say, you got, who are you? Right, right, right. Yeah, who I mean, the hell that, are you anyway? You're just like a law professor from Bar-Ilan University. You don't get to say, I, I'm the voter here. You're just some pundit. Like, screw you. Yeah, I mean, that's the crazy town thing. The the lack of any sort of democratic, I mean, like the idea that the ABA would be the third branch government or appoint the third branch of government is insane. Yeah, right. right. It's slightly insane. Yeah. So that's number one. I think we need to go to the second major uh-huh. controversy, which is sort of more important in some ways, which is that two parties got in the government because they merged and they're, they're, ex- they are, uh, they're led by two very incendiary politicians, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Betzalel Smotrich. These guys are, um, in, it's, in the American context, it would almost be as though the guy who did Ruby Ridge and Al Sharpton were in the, you know, ended up as with 14, with more than 10% of the seats in the Knesset or 20% of the seats in the Knesset. and. Uh, well, 10% of the seats, 20% of the coalition that, that is running the country. And uh, one of them sort of like is an implicit backer of uh, the terrorist Baruch Goldstein who shot up Hebron in 1995 and killed 29 people, had a picture of him on, on his wall. Uh, they, they are, um, they not only, they, they want to talk about transferring Arab populations out of Israel to the West Bank, they want to annex the West Bank. Um, they're they're very incendiary now, and so uh, the a lot of people are absolutely out of their minds with rage and fear that this is Israel's future. That Israel is now going into this authoritarian populist future in which the these guys are represent the future of Israel's democracy, which will be. Religious, like uh, religiously authoritarian, uh, insisting on permanent sort of oversight or governance of this captive Palestinian population, and uh, will insist on all sorts of uh, socially conservative religious measures that will destroy Israel's place as a cosmopolitan, fractious, you know, multi-level democracy, and. Um, they're make all kinds of arguments about about them and what's wrong with them. Simple fact of the matter is politically, what happened is that Bibi, who is a very, very, very brilliant politician, convinced these two guys to go into coalition together because, for complicated reasons, neither of them, it's possible that neither of their parties would have been able to be in government if they had remained apart. I don't want to go into the reasons why it's too boring, but because they came together, they ended up with um, a lot of seats and a lot of voters where separately they would have had none. He needed them. He needed those voters. 
and he needed them to get over the hump and they got him over the hump. And, uh, and so people are screaming because it's like, he now owes them everything. He, and mm. now he'll be in their thrall because they have the balance of power. They got him into power and they are, they are bad news. I'm not so sure they're as bad news as people think. Uh, some of the things that people have asserted are so dangerous about them. One of them, the big one, which already happened, is this idea that they are going to insist on changing the status of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, which is in Jerusalem, is the site of the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest site in Islam. Uh, the Temple Mount is also the site of the holiest site in, in, in Judaism, which is, the, which is the remains of the Second Temple, uh, uh, which was destroyed in, in, uh, in 70, uh, 70 A.D., and uh, Jews are not allowed to pray. Jew, Israel took the Temple Mount in the Six Day War, and ever and Moshe Dayan, the defense minister who was uh, hostile to religion, made an agreement with the Jordanians who would minister the holy sites of of Islam in in uh, uh, in Jerusalem that um, that Jews would not pray on the Temple Mount. So it's literally the case that if you're a Jew, you go up on the Temple Mount and you and you move your lips to say the Shema, for example, which is the central prayer in, in, in Judaism. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you move your lips, a cop will come up to you. He won't arrest you, but he'll throw you out. He'll make you leave. You cannot move your lips because it will look like you're praying. So in Israel, a democratic state, in a, the city of Jerusalem, which is you know, the eternal capital of Jerusalem, the one place in Israel that no one that that is it is forbidden to pray as a member of your religion is the Temple Mount for Jews. Muslims can pray anywhere, Christians can pray anywhere, Baha'i can pray anywhere, Satanists can pray anywhere. Jews cannot pray on the Temple Mount. And so um Itamar Ben Gavir, one of these guys, took a walk on the Temple Mount and prayed a little bit. It's not clear if he prayed or not, but he took a walk on the Temple Mount. Years ago, when Ariel Sharon took a walk on the Temple Mount, that was considered one of the causes of the Second Intifada. Anyway, whatever is the case, he did it and nothing happened. There was, there was like, this is going to ignite a war that will last forever and there'll be violence in the streets. And as often happens when people predict outrage on the part of Arabs and the destruction of all comedy in the Middle East, when Israelis actually do things, they don't, in fact, respond particularly. Anyway, that's, that's, those, that is the political controversy uh, surrounding this uh, supposedly evil uh, government. And uh, the Palestinians now, as, as this is a new government, are testing it. So last week, there was a, uh, in, in the refugee camp city of Janine on the West Bank, uh, which was the epicenter of the Second Intifada, which is where all the bombs were being made during the Second Intifada, the the, the suicide bombs that were you know strapped to people's chests. Uh, Israeli commando, sort of like on Fauda, if you watch Fauda on Netflix, uh, uh, interdicted a cell of uh, pal seven Palestinians and killed them as they were planning attacks. Uh, and then two days later, a 21-year-old kid in East Jerusalem shot 17 people, killed seven, injured 10 on their way into synagogue or in synagogue 
on for Friday night services, Jews. And, um, and so you've had this bizarre thing happen over the course of the week where Western journalistic opinion anal- basically is uh, uh, what, what both sides in this. So Israel killed Palestinians and the Palestinians went and killed Jews. Uh, the Palestinian killed, se- killed and shot 17 people who were on their way to prayer. The Israelis killed seven people who were part of a terrorist cell. How are these equal? This is Western. This is how, this is when people say that the treatment of Israel in, in the media is despicably, you know, one-sided and repulsive. This is what they're referring to. So. Uh, well, two questions. One is, going back to the structure of um, the Israeli government, it kind of is reminiscent about the Jackie Mason routine where, um, you put Italians in uniform and they, yeah, they can't do it. anything. Fight now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the, you, yeah. you put Jews in uniform and all of a sudden they can fight, you know, that kind of thing. Like Jews typically are really great intellectuals about political science and law and stuff, but you put them in their own country and they design the most fakakta kind of system of government. I mean, it's democracy. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm just saying it's wildly dysfunctional. Right. I mean, the, the lack of a written constitution, if you're going to have a parliamentary system and you don't actually have the provision of judicial review and you don't have an upper chamber of your legislature, that's bananas with among the most disputatious people in the universe um, to have just one parliamentary system. And when people think and then, you know, there's better idea, but when people talk about how, you know, coarse and and ugly our politics are is like go listen to the arabs on the floor of the israeli you know knesset talking about how the government that they work in should be destroyed um so why what is the actual history of um i mean i not the formation of israel but like the decision to like pick necessary but not sufficient parts of the british model you know, that is obviously a, a topic for a long you know, story. We're not going to take the dissertations, but yeah. Israel grew, the government of Israel grew out of uh, the Labour Party largely. So remember that uh, Israel was formed in 1947 and 1948 after essentially a kind of war of resistance against the British. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they had were these competing political forces. And each of them was kind of like a militia more than it was a party. The Labor Party and the, and the uh, Herut or Likud, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the sort of right-wing revisionists on one side and the socialist laborites on the other side. And the socialist laborites won complicated reasons and they were they were not particularly interested in that they were often hard socialists like not not communist socialists but um this was a country that did not want to have a free market economy it it and leaders, didn't for quite a while <laughs> its leaders did not want a free market economy they wanted to direct everything and control everything and they they announced things like everybody you know, in Woody Allen's but everyone needed to change their name. That was a big thing. Like there was an announcement <laughs> in 1950, everyone should change your name, change your last name to a Hebrew word or a Hebrew name or your first name also. Like it wasn't precisely a law, but it was kind of like, we're a new country. Everyone must have a new last name. 
mm-hmm. like that. This is, was a big thing. Like they were very directed, top down directed, and so uh, they had the qualities of socialist internationals, also, mm-hmm. which is that they were mean and insulting, and they sucked, and they were they were <laughs> nasty to their they were nasty and ungenerous to the minorities in the country who were not part of their ideological coalition and uh, they the labor party ran the country for 30 years and by the time they were done in uh, 1977 the country by this point was majority sephardic that is to say the labor party people were all ashkenazim meaning they were jews from europe or you know soviet union or whatever sephardic jews mizrahi jews are the remnant of um of of spanish jewry that was you know kicked out of spain in the in the inquisition and they went all around north africa and in it and all over the, all over the place and in after the founding of the country in a lot of places they were expelled en masse from yemen from egypt from iraq from iran and and they and they ended up in israel um and uh, were mistreated by the labor government. And by 1977, they were the bit, they were the source of support for the minority party, uh, Herud or Likud, and which was run by Menachem Begin. And Begin becomes prime minister. And uh, the country has never been the same because labor ran out its welcome. It ran the economy into the ground. It was very haughty and the what, what its genius was that it had built this astounding army, and then uh, in 1973 they they mishandled, mismanaged, and 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 misled the country and the and the Yom Kippur War, which was ultimately in which the Israelis ultimately prevailed in 1973, but was a was a historical disaster that kind of destroyed the standing of the Labor Party. But basically. Uh, they didn't believe in democracy. They didn't believe in setting up a system in which the rights of the minorities would be protected and stuff like that. Uh, they wanted to have a command economy and a command political system. Um, and so they didn't, they arrogate, they didn't want to have laws that <laughs> limited what is our constitution. The, the purpose of the constitution is to limit state power. That is the purpose of our constitution. And of all constitutions. That is what it does. It says, you know, the presumption is not that you can do everything, but that you should do nothing and that and that the power that you take for yourself is the exception and not the rule. That was not the ideological vision of the of the the people who won the fight for the founding of of Israel. So all right. So and then the second point, and we don't we really don't need to dwell on this because we have vital political pop culture rank punditry to get to. <laughs> but um uh, you said, as you were so wont to do, um, while trafficking uh, anti-Israel liberal uh, talking points, um, that the uh, the Dome of the Rock is the third most holy site in Islam. And I have friends, and I think the Venn diagram with your friends overlaps considerably, who tell me, I am not studied on this, this is what they tell me that this is largely a myth that if you read the Quran, the dome of the rocks, just not a thing in there. Um, that this was sort of created as, I'm not saying it wasn't a holy site. Sure. It was a holy site. But, um, if you look at Islamic history, there are obviously Mecca Medina count as like the 
you know, the top two up there. But then it was places like, you know, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul or wherever. There were other places. And the idea that the Dome of the Rock was the, um, was, you know, number three, part of the language, with a bullet um, of holy sites, uh, right. is sort of a modern invention to justify outrage there. I don't know if I, that's true, but well, I've heard this from various people. What I gather is that the Dome of the Right Rock is a reputed to be the site from which the Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven on his steed Barak. Interesting name, Barak. Uh, Barack Obama. This, I know, but this also, Barak, it means lightning in, in this, Arabic and Hebrew. This also raises one of the far too rarely asked questions is, do all horses go to heaven? Uh, uh, <laughs> did yes. the horse well, come back down after yes. he went through the clouds? <laughs> uh, I, 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 he ascended to heaven, and I guess, uh -huh. you know, one assumes that he is up there in a lovely pasture, um, uh -huh. you know. Uh, but, um, but anyway, that is, that is, I believe, the source of the idea that, uh -huh. uh, that, that the Dome of the Rock is the third holiest site. Now, by the way, I didn't know that there were lists of, I yeah. mean, does, does Catholicism have, I assume that the Vatican is the holiest site in Catholicism, but I don't know, are there, is there like a hierarchy? Is Lords holier than, I, I, what, I don't know. I mean. So I, I, I have, I'll, let me put it this way. I doubt very much there's an official list, uh -huh. but I promise you someone's got a list. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I know that uh, for Mormons, the Garden of Eden was in Kansas City, and the and the Holy City of 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 the Church of was Nauvoo in Illinois, that was mm -hmm. destroyed when uh, when um, people came to lynch Joseph Smith. So I guess there are sites like that. But yeah, I mean, I, Judaism doesn't have holy sites. There is only one holy site. That's when I say it's the only holy. Judaism is not a, a, a religion that functions icon, you know, like object objects of veneration specifically. And the whole thing was that the that the practice of the religion as a public communal matter until the destruction of it took place in this one site in the temple in Jerusalem, and when the country was whole. Uh, you know, the temple was destroyed. The Romans came in, they allowed the Jews to rebuild the temple and then later Romans destroyed the temple and for 2,000 years, Jews have been trying to return to the place where the temple was destroyed. So uh, the, the reason I'd say, oh, it's, a, it's like an interesting talking point because Charles Cranhammer used to say this. Like he would say, mm -hmm. you know, they say, oh, you got to be careful with their holy site. And it's like, they have other holy sites. <laughs> we don't have any, we don't have any holy sites, but this holy site, therefore it's kind of more important for us than it is for them. Because right. if we don't have the temple, we have nothing. If they don't have the dome of the rock, they have Mecca and Medina. Therefore, you know, like they're better off than we are in the, in the holy site calculus. It's sort of like an SAT kind of analogy question because it's also the the logic of this argument tracks almost perfectly the larger logic of the argument about how Israel is the only Jewish country. There are lots of Muslim countries, right? Yeah. <laughs> Muslims have lots of holy sites. Israel only has one holy site. They, they're sort of miniature versions of each other or whatever. 
All right. All right. So uh, now that everyone understands what is going on in Israel <laughs> and has no questions because we've authoritatively settled all of this. None. Yes. Let's uh, move on to uh, politics for the, mo- for the time being. Um, um, how are you feeling as someone who broadly shares my philosophical and moral outlook on, um, on Donald Trump? I'm not saying we saw eye to eye on every single thing, but, you know, we're, you know we can sit at the same booth without yelling at each other at a diner. Um, uh, how are you feeling about the GOP right now? I mean, I feel pretty bad. I don't know how, how even, I mean, the interesting thing is that everybody in the ambit of the GOP doesn't like the GOP. Fact check true. That's fair. Right? So Trumpians don't like the GOP because, you know, Coco Chow and her robot husband, (laughs) who is very, very mean to Donald Trump are running things and that's terrible. And, um, you know, uh, people in the house who revolted against Kevin McCarthy don't like Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy doesn't like them. I assume that the most of the body of the house of representatives, uh, has some qualms or problems with some other function of the, the GOP. And, uh, we're now only talking about officials or, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, no, but the data shows the that party most seems to have GOP no base right. voters yeah. vote against the other party. They actually hate the GOP. I mean, yeah. same thing yeah. with a lot of Democrats. Is, you know, most Americans, they aren't partisans because they love their party. It's because they hate the other party more. <laughs> but I mean, what is there to like about the GOP? I mean, honestly, like, what is there to like? Like, is there an agenda that the GOP has that 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 I like? Well, I mean, there are elements of the agenda that I like that... Um, uh, would be farther along and in much better shape of, had Donald Trump, you know, never gotten on the escalator. So uh, I, I, you know, a lot of that is kind of um, entropic. Like it is the old, it, it is GOP issues from time immemorial, largely, but you know, like, are you for larger government or smaller government? Republicans are for smaller government. Are you for uh, you know, strength abroad and order at home. If you're a Republican, you will tend to be supporter of that, broadly speaking. And if you're a Democrat, you're less comfortable with that. But all of that sort of took this weird hit starting in 2016. This kind of, there was this jagged discontinuity where all of that was true except when it wasn't or at any given moment. You know, we like we like the cops, but we hate the FBI. We like, you know, we like, uh, you know, we like order, but we, you know, there's the deep state, which is bad order. And, I, you know, all of that stuff. And I don't know what the GOP is, except, as I say, this kind of entropic force that is still, broadly speaking, representing less regulation, uh, even despite the stuff that went on, probably, you know, greater, more military spending, uh, more support for, uh, you know, traditional values, the, the family, stuff like that. But um, it's not an advocate of those things. It doesn't know how to talk about those things in a way that is rallying or elevating or, uh, or, or logistically compelling. And, um, 
And so, you know, here we are, you and I and the remnants. Uh, I, I don't even know what we're a remnant of. Or, because in the end, the thing that I think we always had in common and that people, which is, I always resisted the idea that I was a Republican. I would tell, first of all, I was mm-hmm. a journalist, so I was not a party official. You know, when, when they were on these talk shows, you and I, right. and it was always like, I was there and then there would be you know, the New York State Democratic Party chairman. Right. And I'm like, I'm not the other side of him. I write for the New York Post. I run Commentary Magazine. I run the Weekly Standard. I'm not, I'm on the right, he's on the left, but that we are conservatives. And again, like broadly speaking, if there's a conservative party in the United States, it's the Republican Party, but it's very corrupted as such. And, you know, this is put not your trust in princes. Don't, you and I think agree, you know, you want, for the purposes of political thickness, uh, which you want in our country, you want stronger parties, not weaker parties. You want stronger uh, internal coalitions or people forced to go into internal coalition in their own movements in order to provide a check and balance against their own ambitions and all of that. But, um, you know, I'm not a party man. I've never been a party man. And I've never been, I think we've never been more... Um, justified in the idea that one should hold to a higher standard than who than who it is you vote for on uh, you know on election day yeah i mean on the on the on the point about the punditry thing it was always a great peeve of mine and the peeve was always you know there are certain peeves that you have where you get much angry about it when people think you're crazy for thinking it and um you know you go on TV shows, and and it would happen to liberals too. I mean, you get liberal writers from the New Republic who go up against, you know, GOP political consultants. It's the same problem, right? And, like, you and I are in the business of writing and saying what we believe to be true. And political consultants and political campaign people, they're paid to say what they believe to be true, but only in private. <laughs> in yeah. public, they're supposed to say whatever is good for yeah. the party or the client. And to put the, just an inherent mismatch to have arguments between those kinds of people. But the problem is, is that if you actually get people who are intellectually honest fighting with each other, you often don't get the kind of fireworks that TV producers want. Right? Well, it's you not satisfying. Get- I think what's even more important about what you just said is one of the things that has been the crucible for you and, and me and, and others since 2015 is that what you said there was just a base truth about what it is to do what we do. I'm not elevating. I'm not saying that what right. we do as writers or columnists or whatever is better than anybody else. But but the, but kind of the base rule is you're going to people and saying, "Here's here's what I think," and may and, and you're like it's a free market. Like you don't have to listen to me. You don't have to pay right. attention to me. I'm. You know, if I'm compelling and you're interested, I can be of use to you, whatever, go ahead. It's when suddenly it became the case that people whose job it is to say what they think weren't saying what they thought, that everything started to go totally haywire. And when people that you knew who knew what was wrong with Trump would start sucking up to Trump or people who knew whatever, it, it, it was like everything was reversed because it's like, what else do you have? Right. What are you representing here 
by being disingenuous about your own opinions. It's like my favorite moment in the 1990s when this guy, Josh Steiner, I can't remember if his name was Steiner. He was a deputy uh, at the Treasury Department and something happened and he his diary was subpoenaed mm-hmm. uh, and had some entry that was injurious to his boss. And he said in open that he had lied to his diary. <laughs> you know? So it's like he that the only way you could get out of saying, yes, my boss did something illegal. I, again, I don't remember it was in the Clintus. I don't remember what it was, yeah. was to say that he had lied to himself in a piece of writing that he had done to himself that was, you know, would locked away with a little tiny little key. And that this was a fundamentally what sort of happened in this invasion of the body snatchers was all these people who thought one thing for 30 years suddenly were saying that they thought another thing. And I don't know, either they were being disingenuous or they all went crazy. And either neither one of those answers is even remotely, uh, you know, uh, comforting. So just to remind you, because you brought up the lie to the diary story a couple mm-hmm. months ago on the commentary podcast. And I texted you afterwards, as I often do when I disagree with you guys about that podcast, uh, to, to scold you because you had forgotten the best part of that story. And you've and done I it again. again, obviously. Yes. Where I believe it was now I'm going to probably get something wrong here, but I believe it was Anthony Lewis explained that this guy who lied to his diary couldn't be a bad guy because he had been friends with him since he was a little kid and was loved to sing the Felix the Cat song to him and actually wrote in a column that during this scandal, this grown like law school graduate guy who says he lied to his diary, called him up in a state of anguish. And Anthony Lewis, then arguably one of the three most prominent New York Times columnists in America, sang the Felix the Cat song to him over the phone. Now, we have big hearts. People do strange things in private. Yes. I wouldn't write it up in a column. <laughs> um, you know, I'm having this memory and I don't know if it's if I'm if I'm if I'm right about this because it's like too good to be true. I'm actually looking looking this up to f- figure out. Uh interestingly enough, um uh, Mr. Steiner's Wikipedia bio contains absolutely no mention of uh <laughs> It just mentions that he was in national as a result of the Whitewater investigations. So apparently he had lied to his diary about that. But the Felix the Cat thing, I have some dim memory of an early meeting at the Weekly Standard where our Monday morning meeting erupted into into a a group rendition. Hold on, I found it. I I, I slandered uh, Anthony Anthony Lewis. Lewis. It was Roger Rosenblatt. Oh, dear God. Yes. The Felix the Cat song. Yes. Uh, my apologies. I think, but I think we there. broke out into the Felix the Cat song in tribute <laughs> to Josh Steiner and, 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 and Roger Rosenblatt. Um, so, should we right, do so, it now? Felix no, the no, Cat. The wonderful, wonderful <laughs> cat. Okay. <laughs> no. no. Uh, besides, I, I'm much more partial. Whenever he gets in, he digs into his bag of tricks. Okay. I am much more partial to the Megillah Gorilla song. <laughs> That is better. And um, and not to mention, of course, the Underdog song, which is actually a legitimate great song. It is. That, all those are, yes, are great. Speed of Lightning, Power of Thunder. Something all, uh, fighting all who rob or plunder Underdog. Do you underdog. remember who did the voice of Underdog? Who's that? Wally Cox. 
Really? I did Wally not Cox was the voice of Underdog. And Wally Cox was Marlon Brando's boyfriend. But we can, we can, uh, we can, uh, we can we can jump uh, over that. Just uh, just right. let that marinate. You can look up Wally Cox and Marlon Brando, uh, most interesting duo in 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 um, in history uh, on on Wikipedia. But let, let's move on. Okay. So let's let's we got to do our our fair and balanced bit here. Um. Um. There's been some breaking news. I can't quite figure it out, but apparently the FBI has searched the Rehoboth place again. With I think Biden. it hadn't searched the Rehoboth place at all. Oh, it hadn't. Okay, is that no, what happened? No, it only it had only searched Wilmington. This is interesting, uh, by the way, because I looked this up. So Biden's house in Wilmington, right? So Biden is vice president right till 2016, uh, 20, early 2017. Uh, and he, um, there's all this talk that he brought some papers from the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, Dick Durbin said was really bizarre that he could have brought papers from the Senate because the way they do it in the Senate is they bring it into your office and you read it and then they take it away from you. Right. But it might have made sense for this stuff to be at his house in Wilmington because that was house in Wilmington. The house in Rehoboth, he bought in late 2017 or something like that. With Chinese money? <laughs> Just kidding. Go on. Yes, probably. Anyway, <laughs> probably. so... If this is all just happenstance, it makes sense in the happenstance thing that boxes were taken to this office in Washington as they were transiting out of the White House. Or he had stuff in Wilmington because he had collected it over time, Senate and Vice President. Makes no sense for anything to be in Rehoboth unless it mm -hmm. was brought there on purpose. Because he moved there after both things. That's why the Rehoboth search is interesting. And we still haven't gotten to the bottom what the six items is, right? Uh, we just, that's... Right. So there are six items they said they took from the... But items was a very carefully chosen word. Right. Well, so I, the reason I bring this up is I have a very prominent lawyer friend um, who is not David French, not Sarah Isger, not Andy McCarthy, you know, who's actually like in the mix still doing lawyer stuff. And, um, and he was telling me about how he had picked up um, as he has many times in the past, the some of the evidence from a very from various from a trial, um, and you go in and you have these checklists, and it's you know you check off that this is the evidence that was handed over, the check off that this is the evidence that was used in court, and then you check off. I mean, I'm messing up what the checklist yeah. is, but it's like that, and then and then the thing that you check, and he would say, so I went and picked up my clients, um, evidence electronics. And the way it says it on the envelope is five items. And the five items were two laptops, <laughs> you know, a phone, um, a USB drive, and, you know, and some documents or whatever. That's, you know, whatever it was. And, like, if you're in a pedophile case and you seize uh, a thumb drive with 100,000 images on it, it's one item, right? So I have this theory in part from this conversation I had with this lawyer friend that um, like up until now, I've been very open to the idea that this was incompetence that, you know, he's an old guy. He's got 50, he's got a half century of, of paper all over the place. Um, and that he screwed up careless. Doesn't mean he's innocent, right? That's not an excuse. Uh, normal people go to jail for some of this stuff, 
but it wasn't sinister in any way. I am now starting to come around to the view that like there is something about Hunter. Um, and I don't think it's something about Hunter that is uh, necessarily some grand conspiracy kind of thing, but just something damning, embarrassing, terrible about Hunter um, or maybe his brother or whatever it is. But it, this is feeling more cover y than incompetent to me. Am I crazy about that? No. Well, we don't know if they found anything at Rehoboth. Rehoboth, that's why I tried to make this point about the timeline of the ownership of the house in Rehoboth. Because if there's stuff in Rehoboth, that's weird. That's a deliberate choice to take things. Uh, like I say, you can understand there was something in an envelope and it went to the Penn Biden Center. Right. You can understand that there's a box in his base in his garage. Again, as you say, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Sloppiness is not an excuse for committing a crime, taking classified documents beyond the 25 mile limit outside Washington. As you said, people have been prosecuted. Their lives have been ruined for, for less. But if there's stuff at the house that he bought a year after, like moved into a year after he was vice president, it had to have been brought there mm -hmm. and placed there. Now, that doesn't mean that they found anything. But if they found something, it changes the definition of what Biden was doing with classified information and whether he was hiding it deliberately and not as a result of oversight or sloppiness or carelessness. It just does. But, but also we found out yesterday that the FBI had in fact searched the Penn Biden Center um, in November, right? And, and it has been, I understand the reason for the talking point about you, wanna, you have to come up with something that's a contrast with Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're both guilty of the same pr underlying predicate crime, which is... Yeah inappropriate possession of documents. Trump has more, maybe they're more sensitive, whatever, but like they both cross the, the Rubicon, you know, sort of threshold question the same way. And so they leaned heavily into this transparency thing. But they haven't been transparent. You know, they just haven't. I mean, they haven't, they haven't obstructed justice the way Trump allegedly has, but they've not been transparent. You know, part of this is Something happens that's bad, right? Somebody finds these documents at the Penn Biden Center. Now, again, let's let's assume all innocence. Like it's not like, oh my God, we better go. We better better go search the Penn Biden Center. It's like, no, no, we're just closing up the office. Okay, let's we can take that as an argument. So they find something, and then they're like, we were totally above board. We called the archive, and you know everything went fine. And that's their spin when they come out with it. They don't want to say it for the election because they don't want to have this issue muddy up the election. So they'll take a hit for that, but there's no crime in that. Just he doesn't have to say that they found something and told the archive. They, they decided to do it on their, at a time of their own choosing, pretty much because they knew that the, that the Justice Department was going to have to name a special prosecutor probably. But um, they, again, in all innocence, so they, they do this and then the spin doctors come up with the spin. This is where the problem all starts because the spin doctors don't actually know what's going on. Right. They're like, we'll just say that we're being totally transparent. But maybe it's not wise to say you're being totally transparent unless you know you're being totally transparent. Right. This is sort of like 
I don't want to analogize this to Watergate or previous, but it's like whenever somebody tries to fix a scandal, but they don't have all the details, they make the scandal worse, but it's not their fault. It's like, should we say that we're being totally transparent? And Biden says, yeah, yeah, we'll say we're being totally transparent or something like that. But the people who know that there's a lot more crap going on behind the scenes aren't telling them the truth or aren't giving them the full fill. Uh, and so everything that's been said about this, we cannot take at face value. We, we don't know what's going on. And the presumption is, well, you know, Trump's a bad person and Biden's not a bad person. So everything Trump did was bad and he does bad things. And I'm not unsympathetic to that view and he stole, said, I, I get to keep it and all of that. But none of that, just because Trump is a bad person and does things in a bad way, doesn't mean we presume that when Biden is caught doing the same thing, that he's a good person who just made a mistake. Right. And also, just as a matter of, I mean, uh, you can fact check me on this, but as a matter of law, there is no law on the books in the Federal Register or anywhere else that says, so long as what you did wasn't as bad as what Donald Trump did, you're in the clear, right? right. I mean, that's, that's just not the standard. The media, for the media, yeah. it's the standard. This is better than Trump. This is worse than Trump, blah, 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 blah. But if you're a prosecutor, I understand because of the politics and the optics and all, yada, 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 this makes, this has really good, been really good news for Trump. But as a matter of just simple law, the fact that one person got away with 10 murders yeah. doesn't mean the guy who gets away with one murder that you have evidence against should get off scot-free. Yeah, I mean, I'm even more unnerved in a larger sense, but, which I, I've talked about in our podcast, but it's sort of like a deeper, which is one assume people are like, okay, well, now Trump will never get indicted. Because if Trump gets, then they have to, how can they not do indict Biden and Biden's sitting president? But uh, you know, So Trump is going to get off and all that. Okay, so maybe he is and maybe if they do not prosecute these guys, if the cases are as they appear, there will never again be a successful prosecution of a pub, of a of an official who mishandles classified information. How will a jury not be swayed by the idea that I what I did was no different from what Biden and Donald Trump did? And you can't pick on me, the little guy, when those guys skated. I mean, that is the best argument ever. That's the misapplication or the, uh, you know, unjust application of law. And, um, and if we don't have a disciplinary enforcement procedure for the mishandling of classified information, we are sunk. Like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. people are just going to, it's sort of like the misdemeanor. It's like New York or it's like, it's like shoplifting at Marshall's or, you know, in, in San Francisco, like, you're going to go off and sell something to the, to the Chinese. Who's going to stop you except your own conscience? I agree. It's sort of, and that's why I really think the problem is, of course, Congress sucks. But the need to come up with a fresh start, set of rules. Yeah, if you want to talk about how we have an overclassification problem, fine. But some things have to be classified. I just think that's an obvious fact, right? It's sort of yeah. like, you know, my long, my 20 year position on immigration policy is that my preferred policy is to have one. Um, yeah. My preferred policy on classification is have one and enforce it. And if politicians have to go to jail, make them go to jail. That's look, not, that 25 years ago, 20 longer than 25 years ago, 
Pat Moynihan started sounding the call. I read that book. It was a good right, book. that there was overclassification of of information in the U.S. government, and it's an important argument. And everybody I know has made it, and anyone who is, you know, and all of that. I'm sorry, you don't get to deploy that argument when your president, when the guy you're trying to defend because you're afraid of the other guy, purloins classified. It's like you know what? It doesn't even matter. What are, what is this stuff that's classified anyway? It's like. That's the discussion we should have been having in 1997 when we yeah. didn't even have any national security threats practically on earth that we were paying enough attention to. Let's just say like there was a point at which we could have done these reforms. You don't get to do them to ex post facto decriminalize something that Joe Biden did if he did it criminally. Like that's crazy talk. Yeah, no it's it's very much like um it's a, it's a, all of this is a great argument for doing the right thing in the moment it happens rather than being clever. If Sandy Berger had been put in jail, yes, we would be better off today. If Hillary Clinton had been prosecuted, we would be better off today, right? Um, because if those two things happened, it would be impossible not to prosecute Donald Trump. Right. It would be, right, you know, and it would be conceivable that Joe Biden would have fixed these mistakes a long time ago because he was like, holy crap, did you see what happened to Sandy and Hillary? Yeah. Um, and, but every, the, I think that this is a, it's a, I've been talking about this a bit on this podcast about how, like, in ancient Rome, one of the things that they used to police and enforce the spirit of republicanism was they were constantly putting Roman officials on trial for purloining yeah. stuff or whatever. I I really think that we need to see some uh some prosecutions of important people and not just um uh you know prosecutions of little people because that it it erodes all sorts of confidence in the system. All right. In the time we have left, I mean you can respond to that obviously, but um you were poo-pooing a while back, I seem to recall um, we were texting about um, the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard's appearance on this podcast. And you were skeptical of the idea that um, Biden wasn't going to run, that he can't run. Um, and then yesterday uh, on your podcast, you had Mark Halpern on who made the case uh, that maybe Biden actually will not run. Um, and you seemed more open to it. So. Mr. Yes. Where do you stand on this question now? Both both the normative and the um um whatever the not the other word for not normative is. I just I can't imagine that Biden I, that Biden won't run mm-hmm. uh, uh absent something that makes him not run. In other words, polls the best, you know, he's the sitting president. I think we already figured out like James Polk is the only sitting president not to run for a second term in the entire history of the United States. Yeah, I guess you could he say accomplished Johnson. all three of Johnson. his campaign promises. Right. And yeah. then he retired. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's really not, I know it's a, I know that's 46 people, so it's not that large a sample, but it's a pretty large sample, really. Um, he clearly loves being president. It's not that hard on him. He gets to spend three days a week in Rehoboth having his blood recirculated or whatever. <laughs> um and, Does he have a blood uh, boy? That would be a great story. Wouldn't to that be great? Yeah, the president has a blood boy. Yeah, <laughs> on the roof, on the roof of the car, like hanging from the car. 
<laughs> and, you know, uh, every terror of the Democratic Party it, it has to be confronted instantly if he doesn't run, right? Who mm-hmm. can beat Trump? He, mm-hmm. We know he can beat Trump because he beat Trump before. He's the only person who beat Trump before. So everybody else who would run against Trump if Trump's the nominee has no history of beating Trump. So if, you're, if your major concern is beating Trump, he's the guy. They can't ditch him. And he's got this other problem, which is if he ditches him, then Kamala's the nominee. Good luck to all of you in the Democratic Party with her as the nominee. And uh, all things being equal, unless Jill Biden makes him stop or something happens. I mean, this is always the thing because it's like, what is it? uh, 18 months or 20 months till the election. And it's a year till the first primaries. Things could happen. This could really be a bad scandal. Like the the stuff could get worse. Uh, you know, there could be whatever. Uh, he could have a health incident, all that. But all things being that there isn't like a discontinuous event that makes it like, oh my God, he can't possibly run again. He will. And uh, and neither AB, whom I love, nor Mark. Uh, Mark said it's his gut uh, on on my podcast. So that's not really an argument. Um, that he won't run again. I mean, all you're doing there is just kicking the can down the road. He runs again basically to prevent Trump from being president. That's his. That's why he ran to be president the first time. He does it again. Maybe if DeSantis is, you know, Trump falls out, and which I also don't think is going to happen. So that's that. That's where I am. I just don't understand. No one ever doesn't run again for president unless you're Lyndon Johnson and you're really, really stupid. Because I don't think Johnson was stupid, but politically he was obviously incredibly stupid. He overread McCarthy's victory in 1960. He over he overread Walter Cronkite coming out against Tet. I assume he just didn't want to be president. Part of it was really like just get this away from me. I really loved being the king of the Senate. This job is horrible and I don't know how to win this war and I want to, you know, I, I would rather jump out the window. But that's a very rare set of circumstances. And, you know, um, who doesn't want to be president when you've been president? What do you want to do? Like make bad documentaries for Netflix? I mean, you know, <laughs> the Obamas are sitting there. They don't know what the hell to do with the rest of their lives. You know, this is the problem with being president too early. Like Obama's sitting there, you know, making lists of his favorite TV shows of 2022, uh, you know, and he's got, you know, he's my age. So he's got, hopefully he's got 60 years left. <laughs> <laughs> he's almost middle-aged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, where are you uh, on this? Do you think he's going to run? I think yours is the most persuasive case in terms of it's just basically um, your, yours is the case for gravity, right? Yours is the case for inertia, momentum, water seeking yeah. its own level. Like, given the facts we have right now, without knowing of something that's going to get in the way, why wouldn't he run, you know, not as a psychological thing, but as just as a sort of a all signs point to yes kind of magic eight ball kind of thing. I, and I, I, so I find that utterly credible and defensible, and maybe that's the right way to bet. At the same time, um, I don't think you see these stories about Kamala Harris if you know, like that 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 
Washington Post story about, you know, misgivings about Kamala Harris. I was on with the author of it, Cleve Woodson, on mm-hmm. CNN two nights ago. And nice guy. Um, and we had some interesting arguments in the green room. Um, and I was also on with Karen Finney, um, who's, you know, just a straight up Democratic operative type. Uh, very nice lady um, in person. But uh, the, that Washington Post piece doesn't get written if Joe Biden is 55 years old, right? That right. Washington Post piece is, you know, like was sort of about 2024, but it was, you know, they also want to have this thing about, will she be ready in 2028 to run for president? <laughs> and it's like, no one's thinking about that. This is all about concerns about not to be morbid, either Biden dying yeah, um, or Biden opting not to run or, um, um, or people wanting Biden not to run, but they're like, here's this problem. We cannot replace Biden with anybody other than Harris, and we think Harris is going to lose. So I think that there is a real flop sweat panic about the mess the Democrats have gotten themselves into. And the thing that, I think I talked about this with AB, but like the thing that drives me the most crazy in the talking points about Biden, um, I mean, you're right, Biden beat Trump. But I hear all the time, People say, um, it's sort of like why I always get annoyed when people say the third holiest light, Satanism. I hear people say all the time, and it always catches my attention, Biden's got the playbook to beat Trump. No, he doesn't, right? I mean, like, he spent a year in a basement when he had a good excuse because of COVID to be in a basement. He has to campaign. He's old. Um, He's got a record to run on. He can't have this sort of nod and a wink implied return to normalcy stuff. Because he'll have had four years that didn't really feel too much like normalcy. And so it's just a complete, and, and, and Trump's a different character now. The parties are different. And so it's just, it's not a, re, it is not a rerun of 2020 in, in that sense. And it requires a completely different playbook. And the idea that, that smart people around Biden think that um, you can run, run the same playbook has got to tear up terrify the even smarter people who realize that he can't. And so I know I, I, I don't know. I, I know I'm talking around this, but Mark I think made he's this just, case. Mark made this case on old. my podcast, right? He yeah. is, but Mark made this case on my podcast that the two likeliest people to be the, to succeed him uh, at the head of the democratic party. If you sort of look at polling, even now, if Biden doesn't run, are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders right. is also 80, and Elizabeth Warren is 73. Yeah. And this is craziness. And so what do people say? They say, oh, you know, there's Pete Buttigieg. This is a, Pete Buttigieg, I think, is a very good political performer. And in fact, if I were Pete Buttigieg, I would be readying my CNN show, because that's actually what he should do, is be, you know, the new Chris Cuomo or Larry King or whatever like that. But, uh, that's ridiculous. The guy is transportation secretary and screws that up and was a mayor of a city of 100,000 people. He's not going to be president of the United States. Gina Raimondo, there, you know, Brett Stevens says he loves Gina Raimondo, the, the, who is now the secretary of commerce, who was governor of Rhode Island. Come the hell on. Like we're talking about the, the, you know, the most important person in the world. Gina Raimondo was a serious candidate for president. It would have emerged before now, and she wouldn't have left the governorship of her state 
to be the head of a tertiary cabinet department that does nothing. So the whole thing is bizarre. And that's why, look, it is an incredibly bad sign for the country. I'm always, I hate when people say, oh, the country's finished, even though I you know, say that to you in text and stuff like that. But if we end up with a replay of 2020 and 2024 with an 81, 82-year-old and 79-year-old or whatever running against each other, both of whom are ethically compromised and one is senile and the other is a psychopath, and this is where we are again, I don't know what that's, you know, are the the Chinese are going to eat our lunch and will deserve it. Like we, this is how this is where we have come to. It's a one thing to have come to it once by a series of historical accidents that Trump ends up president by the nominee and then they have this race in the middle of the, of a once in a century pandemic. But that the basically the country chooses to go through it again. This absolutely horrible Hobson's choice is terrifying. Well, it also, as you remember, 2016, both parties nominated the most unpopular and the second most unpopular public figures in America, right. each of whom were the only people who had a chance to lose to the other. But and to be <laughs> fair, here's what's interesting about Hillary, not to get, not to really... When Hillary started her race for president, when she stepped down as Secretary of State in 2013, she had a 67% approval rating. Mm -hmm. And that approval rating started to crater or move way down in 2015 after the what did I what, wipe, wipe my server with a, with a cloth and, you know, the whole stuff with the server and all that going on through 2015. But by the time she was really like jeopardized it was her versus bernie sanders mm -hmm. party made a perfectly rational choice to pick her over bernie sanders in 2016 i'm saying we've seen biden as president we've seen trump as president right they're both like they both end up with 42 43 percent approval ratings people don't like them their own party whatever and we're gonna do it again Without historical contingency, in you know, if, if this goes on like this, it's not like, well, Biden has to run because there's no one else who could, you know, they're all crazy. They've all gone crazy. And he at least says things like, I don't want to have a socialist economy. And that's like, right. oh, my God, socialist, you know, how can you say that, Joe Biden? It's like, just hand me the nomination. You guys just, you debate. I'll stand here and speak as little as possible, which I've never done in my entire life. Joe Biden is speaking as little as possible. You'll hand me the nomination. I'll just say, I'm not crazy. I, I'll be Trump. I'll just stay in my basement while he tells people to swallow bleach and I'll win. And now he's been president Trump's and they're going to, we're, they're going to do it again. And we're yeah. at fault. And I don't know what this says about the country, except that the entire country is insane. <laughs> the whole country has now gone insane. The parties are insane. And, I, and you know, maybe we need to just really, really, really sink low. Like we really need, you know, sort of like New York, like New York in 1991. Like we really need, we really need to take a stare, look into the abyss before we say, okay, we got to turn this around because holy cow. Like it's a mess. I, I agree. All right. We've gone too long. Um, I promise not to keep you more than an hour. We've gone an hour and 15 minutes and we haven't even talked about The Last of Us, 
We haven't talked about it. Oh, it's so it. good. It's really good, except for, can I just say one thing? So here's what yes. I'm hearing. We got to say, it's last episode, third episode is the episode. Warnings, everyone, if you're not, okay, if you're not caught okay. up, spoiler warning. I'm not even going to talk about, but I'm just going to say this, that it was an unusual episode of television because mm-hmm. it took us away from our protagonists into a, into another story. And everybody in the world of elite opinion is like fainting dead away from joy. And this is the greatest episode of television ever. This is the greatest, oh my God, it's the greatest episode of television ever. And I say unto you, Jonah Goldberg, that if the couple on the episode (laughs) were not gay, Mm -hmm. but it was a woman and a man in a house, and exactly everything was the same, except that they were heterosexual, would anybody be saying this was the greatest hour of television in the history of television. Okay, so we should just, I mean, like, I, I said spoiler warning, so you can still okay. run away, people, but okay. we should just explain this. Uh, third episode of Last of Us, which is this HBO show, which is a, sort of a zombie apocalypse show with some new twists. It was kind of a brilliant um, sort of bottle episode in a way, right? Where um, Nick Offerman, Ron Swanson from um, Parks and Rec, plays this survivalist prepper guy who is almost giddy to have been proven right <laughs> in his yeah. survivalism <laughs> stuff, right? It's like, it's actually happening. And, um, and it turns out that uh, it's a story of him finding this guy. They fall in love. They spend, uh, they spend two decades together. Um, and it was sweet and touching and all the rest, but like for, like I was joking with, with my colleague Sarah Isger about, can't wait to hear what David French's reaction to it was because David and I, we talk about prepper stuff all the time. Right. And we're like, uh, and we think about what our strategy should be and where you go first and blah, 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 blah. And the first like six minutes of Ron Swanson, when the, when, when our Nick Offerman, when the wry smile goes across his face as he realizes it was all worth it. And I, I was right to stockpile my guns. And now I got to execute this plan I've spent my life thinking about. And he goes and he raids the Home Depot and he gets all these supplies. Like at that moment, people like David French and me were just giddy. Right? Yes. And then I was like, oh my God, they're actually going to do this. This is awesome. He's doing it the right way. And, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and then like my dogs, when they realize we're not driving to the park, but we're going to the vet, it turns into this like wait what yeah what ah uh, it's this romantic fantasy which I, I'm not I'm not I don't mean this as an angry homophobic thing or anything I just yeah. mean like I want more prepper stuff <laughs> and, no this is my point which is that which is that the entire reason that you can do an hour like this mm-hmm. is because the couple is gay. Right. No, if I agree. the couple weren't gay, it would be like, what are the stakes? There are no stakes. It's a man. Right. If I, some, he, this woman wanders into his ambit. They're like Adam and Eve. They're in a house. They're cooking food together. They reach, they, they reach people at all this. And so maybe that is the explanation that because, because they're gay and you don't see it coming that they're gay. Maybe I sort of did see it coming. Nonetheless, nonetheless, um, it's like, okay, it was actually, it was pretty good. It was sort of an interesting way to go with this show, which is a very interesting show. 
Yeah. And it's incredible. And I don't like zombies, as you know. It's a very high quality show. It's doing very interesting things. But it is like one of these things where the grading on a curve for wokeness is now so extreme that people are literally in my Twitter feed saying, this is the best episode of television in the history of television. And Which I is can bonkers. name right. 200 episodes of television off the top of my head that are better episodes of television, even though this was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, totally defensible to Pine say the best Barons. episodes. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I, you know, uh, the Rockford Files with Marriott Hartley, the episode, the, that one, the Columbo that Steven Spielberg directed. I, I mean, I could literally name the, you know, the the last episode of the first season of The White Lotus is better than this. Like, it's it's fine. It was good. But, you know, punch all the, you know, push all the buttons and check off all the boxes. And this thing is the one that's going to win the Emmys next year. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But the thing that, I find kind of surprising about it as a, just a cultural thing is like this reaction would have made a lot more sense to me 10 years ago, but this, there's this, there's still this idea that there are, I think I, people, I think one of the reasons people like it is because they, they like to think it bothers other people a lot. It's sort <laughs> yeah. of like, do you remember when they revealed that there was a, that one of the stormtroopers in that one of the Star Wars sequels was was black. Yeah, and there are a whole bunch of yeah. liberal there was a trailer, types. right? It was the first yeah. trailer for the new star, the new three Star Wars, and a guy takes off his stormtrooper helmet and he's black, and suddenly it was like all these racists are going to say it's terrible that the stormtrooper is right. black before any racist said it was terrible that the stormtrooper was black. Right. By right. The no, way, that's my point. Why would it be bad if the stormtrooper were black? Aren't stormtroopers bad? And if you're a racist, don't you think, like, aren't they the bad guys? So wouldn't you not mind if the stormtrooper, anyway, sorry. Right, and the stormtroopers are supposed to track a little bit psychologically as, like, Nazi stormtroopers, right? That's why they're called stormtroopers. And, um, like, oh, so you're saying blacks are Nazis? I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can interpret <laughs> yeah, it that would have been yeah, smarter. Yeah. Um, and, but it was this anticipatory, I'm okay with black stormtroopers but we know that other people aren't going to be kind of response. And, and what annoyed me about that was the people, the only people I knew who were upset about a black stormtrooper were star Wars geeks who were knowledgeable with the canon that knew that the stormtroopers were all clones. Remember the whole clone? Yeah. They were all thing, clones. Right? Yeah. And they weren't, they were clones of actually like a, a Asian or a Hispanic guy. <laughs> they weren't clones of a black guy. And so it was just sort of like, don't call nerds racists because they're nerding out on nerdery. And um, it's sort of like I got attacked by some prominent comment. Uh, Wait, they're all clones of Boba Fett. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Or okay. Boba Fett's yeah. son. Who's actually half Maori. So the there guy you who go. plays yeah. him. Okay, there you go. Anyway. But, but like um, I got attacked by this political cartoonist for saying that the third season of Star Trek Picard was horribly written. And the guy went nuts on me about how well, that's because you support fascism and you're a Trump guy. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, it's because I'm a Star Trek geek. <laughs> you know, it has nothing oh, to do with so these other bad. things. And I, I feel so like bad. this, this, this gay offer, the, the gay, the gay offerman, the lo- gay offerman, <laughs> the, this, the, this gay storyline thing is that people are 
so psyched about it because they think other people are going to be so bummed about it because of homophobia. And that reaction would have made more sense to me 10 years ago. Yeah. Anyway, um, All right. how, having said that, it's a really good show. And it, it, is. it is very, and Pedro Pascal, who is playing playing the lead, uh, is like, I think, giving a potential like performance for the ages. This is some weird merger of Clint Eastwood, Kurt Russell, Bruce Willis. And I mean, he's so touching and he's so physically convincing and so um, magnetic. Uh, and it's yeah. really um, like, it's, it's like one of those things that you could be, think about him the way you think about James Gandolfini or Brian Cranston or something as this transformative part, you know, that, that sort of changes everything for him, but it's only three episodes in so far. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm not loving the little, the girl as much, the one, they're uh, both from Game of Thrones, but the, yeah, the, the girl uh, who was Lyanna Mormont, right? She was yeah. like, yeah. And I, I, to be fair, I think she's a fantastic actress. Yeah. I think the dialogue they're giving her is really, really bad so far. I, it's I don't, mostly I don't, like, I don't, I don't mind that, but I can understand your, I can understand your, 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 your sentiment. I am struck by the fact that every post-apocalyptic show now there was one with rosario dawson somewhere that i watched mm -hmm. one i was terrible I remember what it was yeah. but basically now there's always a scene where they walk into a city and there are two giant skyscrapers that have crashed into each other yeah. this is like yeah. the new look of the post-apocalypse is it's not just that there's grass growing out of everything <laughs> but that skyscrapers are crashing into each other which is well, which is quite the feat, I will say. It is. Because generally uh, in, speaking, you would think that they would kind of to topple each other over. That's that part I agree with. But there is a um you know remember that book uh came out, I don't know, ten years ago, uh The World Without Us. Just sort of imagine what would happen if to nature if humans just vanished. Um one of the points they the guy made was that there's a stream that runs underneath Manhattan. And if they don't sluice out the water or they don't do something with the water, basically a big chunk of Midtown would collapse and the buildings would fall down. So, you know, there could be some, some signs to this. So. Okay, fair enough. But I think, I think that it's explained in the show that, they, that the military attacks Boston, right? That, which is where right. you see the buildings crashing into each other. But that would be a pretty bad F-15, F, F you know, F-35 fighter thing if you couldn't take the buildings down. True, like, shouldn't they true. actually be able to take the buildings down if you're if you're flying over Boston? It's not like there was anti-aircraft fire. True. I'm okay, just, that's all know, I'm saying. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I'm just in favor of the idea of bombing Boston. Yeah. But that's a different matter. All right. John Podoritz, um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been too long. Uh, you guys can check out his podcast daily at uh, the Commentary Podcast, wherever you find your finer podcasts. You can also go to Commentary org right that's yeah changed yeah commentary.org you can hear yeah. it there and of course we have a new glop this week so and we have a new glop this and week we, where we, we talk about naked people we talk about people being naked quite quite a lot i think it's worth i, I think it's fair to say too much uh <laughs> i don't know not, there can never be too much okay so uh john Pedorts has left the studio and uh i want to thank him again for coming on and um um uh we spent a, after we stopped recording, we spent a bit of a time. Adam and and John had a bit of a uh, seminar on how you can or can't say um, no. You want this as a podcast in Hebrew? Apparently, you can't say it. Um, but 
Adam thinks he's 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 figured out a, a linguistic hack um, that one day we'll get to. And um, I had other thoughts, uh, but I cannot remember them now. And um, please become a paid member of the Dispatch community. Sign up, subscribe. We got you know uh, Kevin Williamson, Scott Lincecum, the new politics newsletter. Um, Sarah Isgris Sweep, this Chris Starwalt, uh, Nick Cataggio, five days a week. Um, and, uh, and yours truly. So, um, uh, we want to keep growing. Uh, we want to do all sorts of exciting things and we need people, uh, like you, dear listeners to help us do that. So if you can, uh, we'd really appreciate it. And if you can't, we'll ask you again. Sorry. That's the price of doing stuff getting stuff for free is that people will eventually ask you to pay for more and better um, for not free. So with that, um, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>